and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Morin, and I'm so glad that you are here. This podcast is a companion to the Feasting on Truth Bible study, and we are in the middle of a study on Mark called Unexpected Savior. This study has not only shown me the absolute beauty in Mark's structure, but also the majesty and humility of Jesus, God the Son. It is a sure hope in a world where hardship and diagnoses and anxiety and fear seem to reign. Y'all, he's the one who came to do what we could not, and that's the message of Mark 11, where we are today. If you want more information about the study, go to feastingontruth.com mark. Also, if you're going through something hard right now, or maybe you have a friend who is, maybe you're questioning God's promises or wondering what he's promised you at all as you face uncertain circumstances, I want to invite you to check out my latest book, Everyday Prayers for Faith, Finding Confidence in God No Matter What. It's a 30-day devotional about God's promises to us because He who promised is faithful and we can hold fast to faith. Go to feastingontruth.com faith to order a copy. Mark 11 uh, is surprisingly a hard passage with some very familiar stories. It's not something you would expect to be difficult, um, given that they're stories we typically hear quite a bit. But as I studied, I was reminded why sometimes we need to lay aside our preconceived notion, notions with verses like these and allow God to breathe over our time in the Word. It's also another great example of why we need to do um, some cultural commentary and some uh, what I call confirmation commentary to help us better understand particularly the cultural context around the passage. Here is Mark chapter 11. Hey y'all, and welcome back to Unexpected Savior, an inductive Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. And y'all, we are finally arriving at the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. We are stepping into Jerusalem this week as we enter Mark's third and final section. Before we get there, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Oh, Father. Um, from here on out, Lord, I know this study is... Um, it's heavy and yet it's glorious. Um, it's hard in places, but Lord, it is such a reminder of who you are and what you did for us. Um, and Lord, as we, um, we look today at your very deliberate, your very deliberate messages to us in Mark chapter 11, God, I just pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear Lord, that we would understand who you are, that we would see you. Lord, I just pray over my mouth, Lord, let it share your truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, may I utter what is precious, Lord, and may it be your truth and nothing but, Lord, I stand under your authority. Um, I'm yours. Let's do it. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are in the final section. Um, Mark is broken down into three kind of acts. Um, remember, there are um, places, certain scholars that believe it kind of mimics a Greek um, tragedy. Um, and so we have kind of this idea of acts. And so we have the first part, chapters one through the first part of chapter eight, um, answers who is Jesus. Um, we talked a lot about his authority, his deity, his divine grief. Um, this is where we saw um, Mark kind of pairing um, uh, miracles alongside teaching to kind of reiterate, this, give a physical example of the spiritual concepts that helped us better understand who Jesus is. And all of it takes place in and around the region of Galilee. Um, in chapters, about halfway through chapter eight to through chapter 10, which we just finished last week, um, kind of focus on what he came to do. This is where we see Jesus shift towards some plain speech with his disciples multiple times, three or four times. He tells them, the son of man is going to suffer. He's going to die, but then he's going to be raised after three days. Um, 
this is where we begin to see the unexpected savior. And we have those key verses at the end, kind of talking about how the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And as we move into this final section, we are going to see how he does that, how he um, ransoms his life and accomplishes all that he says he will in a way that saves us. And so I want us to kind of keep that top of mind as we move into this section, um, into chapter 11. We see Jesus is entering Jerusalem, um, and the events that start here start the Holy Week. So we talk about, I know, I always hesitate to call it Jesus's final week on earth because he raised from the dead and spent like 40 more days. So, um, but the last kind of of his ministry before his death, this is that week. Um, and um, so chapter 11 takes place on what we would call Holy Monday or the Monday of the first day of the week. Um, and there's these um, have some very familiar stories. Um, they can be a little bit confusing. So I want us to press in. I want us to remember the context that we have seen through Mark. We do not want to forget everything that we have studied in the first 10 chapters and then just kind of start looking at these in isolation. We want to continue to remember how Mark is writing to challenge the expected ideal of the Messiah that he, um, remember we have, um, his Mark and sandwiches. Guess what? We have one tonight. And then, um, also, um, just that he is writing to this Gentile audience. Um, and I think sometimes, especially with verses like today, which lean very heavily on old Testament, um, prophecy and Old Testament verses, we can forget that. And so I want us to kind of pull back and make sure that we are remembering Mark's intent in writing and his definition of faith. Here, believe, bear fruit. All right, so let's jump in. Verse uh, chapter 11, verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. That was one of the phrases, y'all, that I just noticed for the first time that I was like, oh, I've never noticed that before. They're like, we're going to bring it back. Um, and they went away and found a colt tied on the door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, so I actually need to rescind my previous comment. This takes place on Sunday. <laughs> What we're about to read takes place on Monday. So here we go. We're starting the week with Sunday. Um, this is what we call the triumphal entry or the triumphant entry. It's this glorious picture of Jesus coming in, riding a donkey and the people waving their palm branches and laying their cloaks out and going, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, growing up at our church, um, we did this incredible Easter production. And I can always remember, this was always my favorite scene that we did every year. And I would wave my branches and Actually, I think I really liked it because we ran, got to run down the aisles of church, which you weren't, you know, you couldn't do as a kid normally, but um, it was such a joyous and exciting thing to be part of. Um, we see here in verse one, Jesus is drawing near 
to Jerusalem. Y'all like he's made it. Um, if you look at your map in your book, so we are going to rely very heavily on those maps um, over the over the court, the rest of this study, um, particularly as we are um, the map of Jerusalem as we kind of are going to be in there. But if you'll look um, at the the map of the Holy Land, the dots <laughs> of Bethany and Jerusalem are basically on top of each other. They're only about two miles apart. Um, Bethpage is actually even closer it was a um a little kind of a suburb of Jerusalem and so they've arrived here at Bethpage and he sends them in and says um you're going to go find the cult y'all this is what i love we always talk about jesus's omniscience here like he knew exactly what was waiting for them he had already gone before them um it's i love this aspect of god's character that he goes before us and and everything happens exactly as um he said, but here's something I, I caught for the first time reading this today, y'all, that Jesus deliberately sent two people to go get a cult for him, that he was very deliberate about what they would find. I feel like what we have seen is Jesus kind of shying away from the crowds. Remember, every time they want to take him to be king, he, he withdraws, he's always withdrawing. And here he says, very deliberately, go get me a cult. Like he has a plan to ride it. And there's a very um, good reason for it. Zechariah 9, 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, this prophecy points to the humility of the, of the king, of the Messiah who would come. And Jesus very deliberately creates this picture to help them see that he is he, that that is who he is, that he is that humble king who is coming, not riding a grand animal, not even riding a donkey, but riding on the, the foal, the young cult of a donkey. Um, we saw in the cross, one of your cross references this week took you to first Samuel and, um, kind of see the ties to, um, how, when animals were used for Kings or for, for, um, holy purposes, they, um, they would go for an animal that had not yet been ridden. And so that's what we see here. Um, and I think calendar context is really important to remember here as we are talking this week, um, about this week over the course of the next six weeks of Bible study is that this is Passover. Passover is a festival. It was a pilgrim festival. So this was one where everyone would, um, within a certain, um, area, would all come to Jerusalem to celebrate the the Passover, to celebrate the festival. There were only a handful, I think it was three pilgrimage, pilgrimage festivals, that's hard to say, each um, year. And so um, this one, the, the Passover commemorates the leaving of Egypt. Remember with the 10th plague when um, God told Moses to have them paint the, the blood over the door of um over the doorpost and that the death angel would pass over them to save them from the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh in his grief says, that's it. I'm done. You can go. And all of, all of the Israelites leave Egypt. They are saved from slavery. And so God as a command tells them to celebrate the Passover every year to remember that redemption. And so Passover is rich with intonation that points toward the Messiah, that points toward the redemption. Um, if you'll remember, if you have done the stories of wilderness Bible study, and I'll link to that um, in the show description, but um, one of the, the pictures of the wilderness is that it is a picture of our life with Jesus, that we are saved from slavery to sin, um, and we are ultimately going to be in heaven one day, the promised land. But right now we're living in this wilderness season where we are already, but not yet. We're saved, but we're not there yet. And so um, Passover is, is ripe with anticipation of the Messiah. 
that think about Christmas where it's just, we think of joy and hope. Um, and we have that just kind of woven into our songs in the spirit of the season. That was the same for this um, anticipation toward the Messiah during Passover. And so seeing Jesus on a cult at Passover would trigger for them the coming King and the coming salvation. Um, and the people here respond um, with part of the Hallel. So the Hallel is Psalms 113 through 118. And these Psalms were recited at all major festivals, including Passover. Um, so Psalm 118, 25 through 26 says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so these people are, are singing the song that they already know they're going to be singing as they, um, as they, and as they are kind of celebrating Passover and they're saying Hosanna, the Hebrew word for Hosanna. Um, I'm going to say Hebrew word here because, um, it would have been, I believe the Hebrew word, even though. Um, the New Testament is written in Greek, but it means save us now, please save. And so they're waving their palm branches saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. And the unexpected savior has begun his march to the cross to do just that. Um, that little phrase in Mark, he is the only one that records though at the end of this that Jesus entered the temple after the triumphal entry and that he looked around at everything. Keep that in mind. And then he left for Bethany with the 12. So Bethany um, is the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. Um, I've seen commentaries that suggest maybe he was staying with them. Maybe he was staying with Simon. Um, with so many people coming to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's there, this area is not very big. And so it was unlikely and that everyone would get to stay. And so it's most um, people would stay in some of the cities that are around. So he goes back to Bethany for the night. And then he returns the next day with the Mark and Sandwich. And y'all, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time here today. And I'm going to read the whole sandwich together um, because anytime we see a sandwich, we have to remember, I can't separate it. And so if you want to know the meaning, you have to read the whole thing together. And if you, if we try to separate it, we will miss the meaning that Mark has for us. So verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. It's important. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple. And, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and evening came, they went out of the city and they passed by in the morning. So this is now Tuesday morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is also is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. All right. 
So again, with a Mark and Sandwich, he starts a story, interrupts it with another story, and then comes back and concludes the original story. It's like an A1, B, A2 pattern. And the key is the center story. And so that is where we are going to start um, the cleansing of the temple. So um, the night before he enters the temple and he looks around at everything. Now, I think there are two possible interpretations here. So I'm going to give you the one first that I've always heard. Um, and I'm not saying that this isn't wrong, but I've learned, <laughs> I learned a new thing this week, y'all. And I think it just makes a lot of sense to me. So um, first, um, to kind of understand the context. So um, if you've done the tabernacle study to dwell in our midst, you know that there was a series of sacrifices that needed to be made. And particularly at Passover, um, they you would come to the temple and you would make your sacrifice. Um, these people are traveling from all around. And so it's um, not uh, very easy to travel with an unblemished lamb or a couple doves if you are poor um, or pigeons. Um, was the allotment for the poor. And so there was in the outer courts of the temple space for um, you to buy uh, your sacrifice. Um, the second thing going on is that um, most people had Roman money and Roman money was not accepted within the temple. Um, it was considered Gentile money and unclean. And so you had to change it to temple um, temple money. Um, I can't remember what the word is off the top of my head now. Um, but the currency, thank you. The temple currency, that's what I'm looking for. So um, so this is all going on in one of the temple courts. And so temple courts was one of the words you were supposed to look up this week. And I know it might have been a little bit difficult, but what I really wanted you to be able to see um, is have a better understanding of where this is happening. So in the tabernacle, there, um, it was, you had this kind of court, like if I remember correctly, women were not able to enter through the gate. And then in the courtyard was where the bronze altar and the bronze basin were and where all the sacrifices happened. And then only the priests went into the holy place and the holy of holies. So in the temple, it's much bigger. Um, in fact, the Temple Mount at this time, which is under its um, technically Herod's Temple is what it's called. Um, it's been refurbished. It takes up about 25% of Jerusalem. So if you look at your map, you can see how big the temple is. Um, and there were three outer courts. There's one for the Jewish men, one for the court of women, and one for the court of Gentiles. And so what um, he is describing here is taking place in the court of Gentiles. And here there is, it's been turned into a marketplace and people are buying and selling. And this is how I've always heard and understood this passage is that Jesus drives them out um, because they were taking advantage of people. They were overcharging. They were skimming off the top. They were not doing a fair trade on the money exchange. Um, and so, um, and I've even heard it likened to how um, during Passover, one of the things that would happen early in the week is that the, the father would go through the house and remove all the leaven. So remember how we talked about leaven a few weeks ago in Mark, where he warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees. And we talked about its kind of connection towards sin, its pervasiveness. And so when they were about to celebrate Passover, they would go through and cleanse out all the leaven. And so I've even heard Jesus cleansing out the temple, kind of a similar, that he's going in and cleaning out what doesn't belong there. Um, and, um, and I don't necessarily know that that's wrong, but here's something that I found really, um, fascinating in my study this week is I typically go to, I have a couple cultural, cultural commentaries that I read and neither one of them mentioned this idea that the Pharisees were taking advantage of the people and skimming off the top and getting rich off of the exchanges. And I just kind of thought that was odd because I would think 
that the cultural commentary would include that. And so I really began kind of digging and I found um, this other um, in the NIV application commentary that I thought, think actually might be particularly in this case, a more accurate description of maybe what is going on. Um, not, I'm again, I'm not saying that the first interpretation is necessarily wrong, but when I, when you hear this, you might go, huh, that makes a lot of sense. I think, especially in context of Mark. Um, so remember, we're talking, this section is about how his mission is getting played out, how the unexpected savior. Um, and this one at the core, I think, tells us more about what Jesus came to do. Um, David Garland, who wrote the NIV application commentary on Mark, points to a false trust in the sacrificial system of the temple. He says, Jesus does not seek to purify current temple worship, but symbolically attacks the very function of the temple and heralds its destruction. The temple's glory days are coming to an end. And y'all, that really got me because it actually makes sense. Why would Jesus go in and cleanse out the temple that he knows is about to be destroyed by the end of the week? Like it's not going to be necessary anymore. Um, he kind of points to the idea that that cleaning the temple would just be temporary. They would just show up the next day. But remember, we're talking about the, this is a very deliberate chapter in Jesus's, in, in how he enters Jerusalem. This is very deliberate too. Remember, the disciples heard it. He walked in, he looked around, he comes back the next day. Um, he is moving very deliberately, and I think it's because he has a message to say. Um, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, this is what I thought of when I read what David Garland had said. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls, of calves and goats, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If the blood of bulls and goats could take away the sins, there would be no need for Jesus. And so I think as he enters the temple and begins to clear it out, I think it is him ushering in saying a new way is coming. That like he says, he disrupts, attacks the very function of the temple, not necessarily the corruption of the current temple worship. And that made a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but I want to kind of um, break down the two verses that he quotes. Um, so he quotes two Old Testament verses, Jeremiah 7, and I'm going to read the surrounding verses because y'all know I love scriptural context and I want us to hear because it helps us have a better understanding of what Jesus is trying to say when we understand all the verses that kind of come around it. Um, verses Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11, this section is titled Evil in the Land. And I think that's important too. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is um, by my, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Y'all, I myself have seen it. Directly ties to the afternoon before when Jesus walked in and looked around at everything. He saw it. And he comes back and he says, will this be, you have made it a den 
of robbers. Um, robber, the word means violent. It comes from a root to break through. It's the image of those who violently rob. It's a harsh language. And honestly, where we have always focused is that word robbers, where we go, oh, look, they're taking advantage of God. They're robbing God of what is due and they're robbing his people. But he doesn't call them robbers. He says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. And I thought this was so powerful, y'all. It was so like flipping for me, like it flipped everything on its head for me. The word den implies a place of hiding. Robbers don't break into their own houses and steal. Robbers go to their houses, their dens to hide and to escape what they hope will be the consequences, hopefully escape the consequences. Um, they are hiding behind their pious acts. That is what is going on. David Garland continues, calling the temple a robber's den is therefore not a cry of outrage against any dishonest business practices in the temple. Jesus indirectly attacks them for allowing the temple to do degenerate into a safe hiding place where people think they find forgiveness and fellowship with God, no matter how they act on the outside. Y'all, it was about the sin of their hearts. And if you go back and read that Jeremiah seven verse, that's exactly what he's saying. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. You do all these sins. And then you come stand before me and say, we're delivered while you turn around and go right back to sinning. There is no fruit of faith. Um, I don't think that this is them stealing from God, but more so presuming on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance with their sin. Matthew Henry says, none can claim an interest in free salvation who allow themselves in the practice of known sin or live in neglect of known duty, that um, they thought that the temple they profaned would be their protection. It's that they were using the temple as a place to hide despite their sin. And that is something we have seen throughout all of Mark, the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts, that they are unaccepting of the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, and so they are using the temple as a cover and thinking that they will be able to still get the forgiveness because of what the family they were born into or because of the religious acts that they partake in. Um, in Romans, which um, it takes place, you know, many years later, when Paul is writing to the Roman church, he's writing to bring unity between two clashing ethnic groups. And so he starts with kind of this indictment against Gentiles in general. And then he flips in chapter two with this kind of indictment against the Jewish people in general. And um, he says in verses three through five, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and then do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Y'all, we need to be careful that we are not allowing our Christian life or our covering of grace to be an excuse to continue to go live in sin. I kept thinking also in Romans where he said, um, do we who, who died to sin continue to live in it? By no means. Um, it's like one of my favorite things he says, by no means. He says it several times in Romans. Um, instead, this is what Jesus came to do. And this is um, the second thing that he quotes is out of Isaiah 56, six through eight. And this section is titled salvation for the foreigners. And I think this too, this is where I want us to remember that Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. So I'm going to read six through eight. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant 
These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Um, some versions may say all nations, and that's what he quotes um, here in Mark. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those who have already gathered. Y'all, we have seen Mark literally bringing this together where he has pointed to the outcasts and the foreigners, the ones that um, we continue to see coming to the kingdom of God and profess their faith are this ragamuffin bunch of people. It wasn't the ones we thought. It wasn't the religious leaders, the insiders. It was the opposite. It was the ones that were the outsiders who continue to show that faith. And remember, Mark's definition of faith um, as kind of pointed out by James R. Edwards, is that here, believe, bear fruit. That is his plan. That is what he came to do. So how does the fig tree, so now let's zoom out and let's take the first A1 and A2 here. And um, how does that reiterate this? Now, y'all, this is a big old rabbit hole you can go chasing down for a really long time. Um there's a lot of really cool imagery about fig trees in scripture. Um, and there's a lot of kind of, uh, I, I kind of found very similarly some different um, kind of commentary that explains the actual production of fruit and timing and all that um, with fig trees. Here's, um, here's, well, so one, with a fig tree, it doesn't work the same way. So, you know, typically we have leaves. So like right now I have a mango tree in my backyard and it is covered with green leaves. And then, and then the fruit will begin to form on it and then it will ripen and be ready. Figs actually would appear, early season figs would appear, um, there's sometimes you would find figs before the leaves. And there were early season figs that would be ready in June, even so this is most likely taking place around April, our time. Um, and late season figs would show up in the in the end of summer, kind of August-ish. Um, but here was one thing that was clear. One thing across all of them is that the leafy display gives an appearance that there should be fruit on this tree, but there isn't. The tree is barren. And that is the point. And I think it's really powerful that Mark made a distinction and like made a point to say the disciples heard it. Jesus was very deliberate. Um, I kind of even question whether he was actually hungry or if he's like, hey, I'm hungry. Let's go look at this fig tree. Um, Y'all, he's omniscient. He knew that there were no figs on that tree before he walked up to it. He was deliberate in doing so because he needed the disciples to understand something about his kingdom and about his mission and about what he was going to do. Again, we see here, hear, believe, bear fruit. Religious piety and saying all the right things doesn't mean that you're bearing fruit. Um, Alexander McLaren, who I just always love, and I know I say that every time I talk, I quote him, but he just has such a great way of describing things. Um, he says this, they prided themselves upon their nominal external hereditary connection with a system of revelation. They trusted in mere ritualisms. He's talking about the religious leaders. They had ossified religion into theology and degraded morality into casuistry. I probably butchered that word. Um, they thought that because they had been born Jews and circumcised, and because there was a daily sacrifice going on in the temple, and because they had rabbis who could split hairs ad infinitum, therefore, they were the temple of the Lord and God's chosen. Y'all, they had put their faith and trust in their family line in the law, in the sacrifices, and none of that was bearing fruit. They were nothing but a leafy display. Alexander McLaren actually points out that leaves are good. They're useful. They are something that is needed. But 
their leafy display was not bearing fruit. It gives an appearance of being a fruit-bearing tree, but in the end, it is barren and fruitless. So what then leads to fruit? And this is where Mark kind of comes back. Um, I like how Mark is the only gospel writer to say the season for figs is not yet. And I think this is where a lot of confusion comes in because you're going, well, if it's not the season for figs, then why are you cursing the tree that doesn't have figs on it? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Um, here's what's really fascinating to me is that the Greek word used for season is not the agricultural Greek word for a, a season or a harvest time. It's actually the word kairos. And it's the same word that we see in our theme verse, Mark 1, 14 and 15, when he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I think he's drawing a complete line saying, and this is why I think this is more about the end of the temple than it is about um, clearing out what was corrupt, is because the season had not yet come. The time had not yet come but it's about to in just a few days. Um, the time has come. And just as we talked about with that Hebrews 9 passage, for the old system to go away and the new covenant, the better covenant, the covenant that is of Jesus, that is speaks a better word, that is, um, that is the once and for all, sacrifice that will end sacrifices for all sacrifices is about to happen. And so here's what we do in verse 22. We have faith in God and your faith will bear fruit. Hear, believe, bear fruit. He is shifting to this new, new way and this new covenant under him through his blood that takes us to this new place of faith. Um, and he uses an illustration of prayer. Uh, Y'all, there's a lot. And I just, I'm going to spend a couple minutes just kind of diving a little deeper into this idea of prayer, because I think, again, this is why we cannot separate sections out. And then um, I think this is where we get a lot of name it and claim it, claim it. Well, if I have faith to believe that this is going to happen and I pray with faith and it's going to happen. And then when it doesn't happen, we start questioning our faith. Did I, did I not pray hard enough? Was I not strong enough? Did I have not have enough faith? Um, as I've studied more and more around faith, faith is something, and this is written in that definition that we've kind of come back to several times, is that faith is birthed in us through God. And so there's no amount of faith that you can muster up to bend God's will to whatever it is you want. Um, I think so many times we come to God with our own agendas and we're like, God, here's what I want to happen. And will you make it happen? And I believe in faith and I pray. And that's not um, what he's saying here. That's not what this purpose is. Remember it in the context of bearing fruit. And he's saying, have faith in God. Um, and then whatever you pray will come to fruition. If we are, this is a, this is a message about bearing fruit. This is a message about our growth. It's a message about our own sanctification. Um, prayer, um, Merriam-Webster defines it as an address, a petition to God in word or thought. Um, the Greek word comes from two root words, which means an exchange and a wish or a prayer. So prop properly, it's the exchange of wishes. So it's kind of this idea of a petitioning to God, asking God for things. But I love the Hebrew word, y'all. The Hebrew word for prayer, um, the root word is to intervene or interpose. That means to throw in between two parties. And I just love that idea that um, it's an interceding or an intervening on our behalf, because isn't that what Jesus is doing here? He's interceding and intervening on our behalf. Here's what waits those who join themselves in the Lord. As that um, passage just told us, we hear, believe, and bear fruit. He births faith in the yielded believers so they might know what he 
prefers. If we are holding fast to him and keeping his commands, that's being the yielded believer, knowing what he prefers, knowing his will, y'all, we will not ask for things that are not in line with his will. And his will is our sanctification, our sanctification. God is after our hearts and our formed lives. He can change us. And prayer is one of the ways that we do this. Um, and so when he talks here about being a house of prayer, um, I think so much of it is about the intercession and the go-between. His house is a house of prayer because his house is a is a place where the interceding happens, where a sacrifice is made on our behalf to cover our sins. And he is ultimately about to fulfill that. Um, and I can go into so much more here. Um, you know, the altar of incense in the tabernacle is kind of this symbolic picture in scripture of the prayers of the saints rising, the sweet aroma. Um, if you want, you can go back and I'll link to it in the show notes. You can go listen to that actual episode, um, in the podcast or on YouTube. Um, but, um, I think one of the things that I do want to point out is that prayer that the uh, the altar of incense was the only piece of the tabernacle that come that came with a warning? In Exodus thirty verse nine, he says, "You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or burn an offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it." And we see in Leviticus ten one through eleven what happens when Aaron's sons burn an unauthorized fire on the altar of incense; they lose their lives. And I think what this reminds me is that God is very serious about his name and God is very serious about, um, the way that we come to him. And so I want us to bend toward him and to listen and to allow him to shape our prayers so that they are that sweet aroma. Um, Alexander McLaren gives one of my favorite pictures of the image of, of prayer. It's a tethered balloon tied to earth, but stretching to the highest point it possibly can, longing so much to be in the presence of God. Prayer is an opportunity to enter into the presence of God. And I think that is what is so powerful about it. Um, are our prayers bringing him glory and honor? Are we joining ourselves to God through prayer? Or are we like the religious leaders hiding behind it, presuming on the riches of his kindness and taking his name and character in vain? Um, I want to kind of finish this last section. It's actually pretty short. Um, and really, it's just another hit of the messianic secret. Um, they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things was the baptism of John from heaven or from man answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, when did you, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And then Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you what, by what authority I do these things. So they didn't answer his question. And so Jesus is like, all right, well, then I don't have to answer yours. <laughs> um, you know, he didn't reveal truth because he knew their hearts were hardened. They were just trying to trap him. Um, so I want to kind of close with this. I want us to remember that Jesus is our intercessor. This is one of my favorite, 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 absolute favorite Greek word things. Um, the Greek word for sin is to miss the mark. The Greek word for intercede or intercessor is to hit the mark. Y'all, we, we miss the mark every day, all the time. We are incapable. Um, remember all the things we have seen in Mark that have pointed to the fact that we are not able to make ourselves clean. And here this week, we even see that, that we cannot even make ourselves clean in the temple with a sacrifice. It was temporary. It was never meant to be the thing that would keep us um, clean. It was always meant to point us to Jesus, our true intercessor, who did for us what no human can do. And he hit the mark on our behalf so that we do not become leafy displays of religion that cannot save us, 
but rather brothers and sisters in the kingdom, having faith and experiencing the closeness of God and bearing fruit for his glory. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Y'all, we cannot come to God until we have come to Christ. And when we do, we have faith in him. It is only then that we will find ourselves not as a leafy display and barren and fruitless, but as a beautiful tree bearing fruit, abiding in the vine, um, remaining connected to him and drawing close to the one who is able to make us clean. Would y'all pray with me? Oh, Jesus, thank you for doing what we could not. Lord, um, thank you for uh, fulfilling an imperfect system with your perfect sacrifice so that, Lord, we might be able to hear and believe and bear fruit, that we do not have to stay the same, that we do not have to put on airs and pretend, but, Lord, that we can have full assurance through faith that you have done for us what we could not do. Lord, I just pray that we would not lose our confidence in our faith in you. Lord, remember that you are faithful to do all that you say you will and that you are faithful to be who you say you are. Thank you for the deliberateness of um, the pictures we see in Mark chapter 11. And may we press in and cling as we continue to march with you on the cross. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. is so much more I could have said on prayer and y'all truthfully I'm still wrestling what prayer is and what prayer should look like. I don't know that I have been able to find the right English words to describe it but I think at the root prayer is mostly about being in God's presence. That's why they would do it at the temple. It's where God's glory was supposed to dwell. Our first uh, peek into this idea of prayer is through the altar of incense in the tabernacle. Um, and which is where his glory dwelt. Um, we are now his temple and his glory is in us. So is our life a reflection of the house of prayer for all nations described in Isaiah 56? Or is our heart like the Jeremiah passage, a den of robbers? Are we hiding behind our, our piety? Uh, are we like those who are described in 2 Timothy 3, who have this appearance of godliness, yet are so full of sin? Y'all beware of the leafy show. Let's be women who arrive at a knowledge of truth about God. Let us hear, believe, and bear fruit. Next week in Mark 12, Jesus continues with this idea of the leafy show. We are going to see him continue to challenge the authority of the religious leaders as he shows how his kingdom is different. I'll see you then.